Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. It's The Wonky Show. A university loses a disability discrimination appeal in the High Court will get across the implications. And students are working longer hours than ever. But what can be done about it? It's all coming up. We're stuck in hatred this idea that um, we need to do one way for the majority of people. And I think that's limiting but also the pressure that academic staff are under in order to deliver. And therefore, the easiest route sometimes isn't the best route for those individual students sitting in the classroom. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson, and here to put in a couple of extra shifts, as usual, three terrific guests. In Camberwell, Eve Olcock is Director of Public Affairs at QAA. Eve, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week was Monday morning, I uh, had a meeting in the Shard, and so I felt very fancy and very excited. In Golders Green, Ben Whitaker is Chief Exec at LSE Students' Union. Ben, your highlight of the week, please. Well, my highlight wasn't the OFS uh, webinar on free speech, but it was uh, Uniqlo's great winter sale of knitwear as we move into the spring season, which meant I got a cable knit jumper. Well, actually, I got three cable knit jumpers for under £20. Well, great news. And in East Kilbride this week, James Coe is Associate Editor at Wonky. James, your highlight of the week, please. Jim, this week I've been to the home of the steam locomotive, birthplace of my mum and dad, Darlington Town, the greatest place on earth. And if that is not going to make it a good week, I don't know what will. A link to the Darlington Tourist Board available in the show notes. Now, yes, we start this week with disability discrimination. This week, the High Court ruled on an appeal, and it wasn't good news for the University of Bristol, James. Thanks, Jim. It's a tragic and difficult case to talk about, so I'll go through this carefully. Natasha Abrahart was a second-year physics student at the University of Bristol when, in April 2018, the day she was due to take part in a group presentation, she died by suicide. Natasha had been suffering from a chronic social anxiety disorder, and in October 2017, staff became aware she was struggling, with a follow-up email from Natasha's account in February 2018 to suggest that she was having suicidal thoughts. The High Court has now upheld an initial decision that the university had failed to make reasonable adjustments. However, the judge did not come to a decision on whether universities generally owe their students a duty of care. And this is really, really important. In the press release following the case, Natasha's mum, Margaret, said that they'd been able to get some measure of justice for Natasha because she was disabled and therefore covered by the Equality Act. But what about students who aren't disabled? They argue that a statutory duty of care would apply university staff to exercise reasonable care and avoid uh, causing students harm. The idea that universities do not owe students a statutory duty of care 
I think will be surprising to many listeners, but it is what this entire case has hinged on. I think a crucial, crucial consideration for universities over the next few months. Well, lots to uh, lots to unpack here. Um, let's start with this duty of care issue, Eve. Uh, the, the 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 family in this case were given a, a permission to cross appeal to, to to see if they could establish that there was a statutory duty of care in light of the. Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama case last year, but actually the judge decided that not to not to decide, I guess, in, in this case. But it, it remains the case that a lot of people sort of assume that universities do have a duty of care, and this whole debate over duty of care gets quite confused, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it it does, and and you know, it's I think part of the problem is that it, it's difficult to know what extent of duty of care people are talking about when when they say say the phrase. It makes me wonder whether there's something about um, almost expectation setting, a university expectation setting with prospective students and I guess their families as well, where it's appropriate to at the start of what what they are and are, aren't able to do during a student's time with them. Um, and it also, I, I suppose, highlights the need for universities to work with wider local support services that students can access so that there's a sort of holistic safety net around them. One of the things you alluded to is, is what would people outside of universities think of the idea that universities don't automatically owe their students a duty of care? If, if I go into work, I can expect a duty of care from my employer. If I go into the health service, I can expect a duty of care from the NHS. But somehow when I turn to the university, that doesn't apply anymore. I think people would find that really, really strange to understand. Yes, and it's probably one of the reasons why, you know, both politically through the election process, but also potentially legally, the, um, you know, the family and I guess lots of other people are calling for for clarity here. On on on, on the disability stuff, there was, there was more clarity, Ben. So, um, you know, there were two aspects really in the appeal on disability. And one was this issue about when students either become or sort of realise that they're disabled while at university. And, you know, certainly in the case... Um, there was a real debate about when the university, for want of a better word, knew. Now, this is an ongoing, really difficult issue, isn't it? Because for students who become or who realise they may well be disabled, there are often really long delays to getting what might be regarded as a formal diagnosis. Yeah, it's really, really difficult. And um, I think difficult for students and difficult for the institution, particularly in that transition period when you are um, trying to establish um, uh, whether someone has a disability, um, getting assessments, etc. particularly in the context of what I would call a health crisis at the moment, where accessing those services is, is really um, difficult. It is interesting, I think, with all of these cases that I'm already beginning to see, particularly student services staff, pivot this idea that um, we don't need Need to wait until we have all of the evidence um, that when someone is communicating with us and telling us that they have concerns or issues that we need to act on those. But I think it does for me really bring into this, bring into focus this idea that, you know, how an academic or how those support staff in schools and departments understand the students in those classrooms. It's clear that there has been a lot of communication going between the individual and um, the, the institution and how do you capture that in an effective way so that you can offer that support is important because I think linking back to what people had said previously and even James was this idea that I do think people whether it's true or not expect there to be a level of care um, compassion and um, a level of um, uh, action based upon the information that you give them and I think if that isn't going to be the case we've got to be really clear with students about that 
um, through that place. But I think in particular around this disability argument, um, it is, I think, a really, really difficult area, particularly for the practitioners on the ground who have to work through quite a complex set of things that are going on for the individual, the family, often health um, services, and often the university can be stuck in the middle of that. Now, now James, in some ways, this is where, you know, this particular bit of the, the case and the appeal is it does link back to duty of care because there is a debate about the extent to which academic staff should be able to kind of recognise when someone may be disabled. And then there's a debate about, you know, kind of, you know, student services, disability services, such as she services and so on. Now, at various points in the case, the university was saying, look, if, if this student isn't disabled, it wouldn't be fair to put adjustments in for that student because we have to maintain academic rigor and and, the, and that that line between maintaining academic rigor and making reasonable adjustments when someone might not yet meet that kind of legal definition of you know substantial long-term impairment 12 months and so on is really tough isn't it yeah and you know this was one of the points that the University of Bristol made was that in seeking appeal, they are seeking clarity on what is an enormous and wide-ranging issue. And, you know, Universities UK, I think it was last year, last June, made the point that universities already have a general duty of care to not cause harm by acts or omissions. I think what the difference is here is that basically there are lots of ways universities may intervene to support a student's welfare, access to education, whether that is because they have a disability, whether it's because they're covered by the Equality Act. It seems, therefore, an unusual gap that for students generally, there is not a presumption of there being a duty of care. I, I think the other way to look at this on what Ben was saying is that just in terms of universities managing risk, they must do lots and lots of things which bump into having a duty of care. It seems like the next logical step. But I suspect there'll be further legal tests, further legal challenges, and this will rumble on for a long time yet. I mean, you know, one of the questions, I guess, Eve, is, is it reasonable for academic staff in general or pastoral care staff specifically to at least understand the basics around disability and when a student may well hit that category of disability when they're sort of manifesting with, you know, a set of kind of participation behaviours and so on that you know, might not be um, as as they would expect or uh, and would want. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, I think it is reasonable to expect that. But I, I also think that the the university has a responsibility to to support its staff to be able to spot and understand that. I think there's a danger when we talk about this that um, we we talk about the responsibility on academic and pastoral staff to be able to do x y or z but actually the university at large has a has a responsibility to support them to be able to um do that and also to support them or give them that explicit permission to adjust for example assessment methods where it is appropriate to do so where an alternative assessment method still meets the the sort of desired learning outcomes and standards of, of the course I think it's you know what are we doing if we're not trying to support students to succeed at, at, to the best of their ability and I, I do think reasonable adjustments are, are a really core part of that. And, and I, su I suspect, Eve, that most of the sector would entirely agree with you. The challenge becomes of pinning down the practicalities and the specificity of what a specific duty of care would mean in practice. And, and I think 
in some ways, you know, if you read what um, the Abraham statement after the case was saying, saying actually, why are these why are these group of students not owed a duty of care? And I think it is really, really hard to not say that they do in principle, but practically how you apply that needs some real significant thinking about. Just on this assessment issue, Ben, so I guess, you know, the other really important bit of the case was once it had been sort of established that Natasha was disabled, there was then this question over whether or not reasonable adjustments could be made to an assessment. And the university's argument broadly was that kind of public speaking or speaking in front of an audience in terms of um, her kind of physics module was a competent standard. And um, in, 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 you know, in reality, the, the, the kind of family argued, no, that was just a method of assessment for working out whether or not, you know, kind of N- Natasha knew her stuff in terms of the, the physics. Now, um, this whole question of what assessments can be adjusted and what can't be adjusted is the real nexus between the, the kind of excellence and academic rigor that we often see very in, in particular in the Russell group, but then this other kind of really important need to try to enable disabled students to, um, you know, show off their talents and, and, and reach, you know, the academic heights that they can. And, and that's, um, that's also really tricky, isn't it, in practice? Well, some people would say it is. I, I think it's relatively easy, but um, um, th- there is a big debate about it. I suppose I, I've said a couple of times in, in other things I've been speaking at, I think H has a really interesting um, idea about equity and it often talks about treating people the same. Um, so they have the same opportunities rather than this idea of treating people differently. So they have the same um, ability to be able to access or participate in, in the same way. And I think we can make reasonable adjustments all the time. I think it's about the intention and choice. Um, as long as the reasonable adjustments have academic rigour, I don't understand how we can't have multiple different levels of um, ways of assessing someone in order to achieve the right outcome. That would be very difficult for faculty staff and for institutions because it would um, mean that we have complexity in our assessment methods. But I think this idea that where possible we have one way of doing it for everybody just doesn't cut the mustard. And and I do think there are two there's two slightly different things in here, isn't there? There is this idea that we needed to make reasonable adjustments because of someone's disability. I'm also really conscious, and I don't think this really gets enough kind of airtime in this story, which is about also some of the communications about um, suicide. And at what point does that become a safeguarding issue? And whether you know or didn't know about their disability or whether you um, understand a student's complex needs in a wider context, when a student is clearly in distress or is reaching out and sharing some of that information with you, you absolutely, both on a statutory duty level, but on a human level, I think it's really important to understand that that is somebody sitting in front of you and you need to sit down and understand that even with all of the best effort, that individual may not have been able to achieve the thing that they needed to through that assessment. And therefore, it feels absolutely right that reasonable adjustments were made. And I think, James, you said earlier on about this idea when I go to work, you know, I expect reasonable adjustments to be taken into account all the time. I think if you took this context and put it into a work context, you would absolutely suggest that there would be multiple levels of um, reasonable adjustments put in place. Um, I just think it is a bit of, um, we're stuck in in this idea that um, we need to do one way for the majority of people. And I think that's limiting. 
But also, I think there is stuff that people don't really talk about, which is the time pressure, the pressure that academic staff are under in order to deliver. And therefore, the easiest route sometimes isn't the best route for those individual students sitting in the classroom. Eve, you, you, or at least, you know, the Royal U, QAA, have been round this, um, round these houses on, on adjustments for assessment a few times in the past few years, largely because of COVID. So, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting in this case was in the end, it was kind of partly resolved because, um, what the family said was, look, you know, oral presentation wasn't kind of listed as a competent standard in the kind of module description or whatever. But, you know, if, if we're going to kind of try and decide this kind of subject by subject, you know, should a physicist need to present orally, that there's a, there's a role in there potentially for, you know, groups of academics to come together. And, and QAA runs subject benchmarking processes, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that absolutely is. And, and you know, that's certainly what the, the subject benchmark statements sort of are there to do. Interestingly, I, I actually looked up the, the physics one before this recording, and um, it outlines lots of different alternative sort of uh, different assessment methods that could be used within a, a physics degree to uh, test different um, things. I think that one the thing that this case um, sort of highlighted to me, I suppose, is the, the need for, for course design and assessment design and that kind of academic quality assurance processes within an institution to be really clear about um, what an assessment is going to be assessing and measuring and um, that that can be taken into account when having conversations about reasonable adjustments. Is there another way to reasonably assess that skill set? Um, and the other thing that occurred to me when I was reading this part of the case is that in all of the conversations we've been having about how you design authentic assessment um, in a world of AI, lots of people are falling back on this idea of the sort of mini viva, the kind of oral assessment type to, to demonstrate that someone has learnt what, what they need to learn um, in a way that's sort of not, that is AI proof, I suppose. And this case throws into stark reality the kind of accessibility challenges of some of those new ways of authentic assessment that I think we all know that accessibility and assessment is important but this case really solidifies um, at, a, at an extreme end what some of the, the consequences could end up being if we don't take into that into account properly. Well look, look lots to unpack here lots more on the site just before we come off this James the um one of the other things that was kind of interesting, I guess, in the case was clearly there are some students who, as I said earlier, kind of become or perhaps realize they're disabled or perhaps have long-term health conditions that fluctuate. And, and that thing about, you know, be, being disabled, you know, long-term substantial 12 months, you know, that thing, you know, there are clearly lots of things that universities can do both in terms of teaching and support and also assessment. But but where universities can't or don't because a student isn't disabled, we have a really unforgiving student finance system in terms of being able to pause or stop or take a step off for a few months or six months, don't we? And, and you know, to, to make all of this work, it, this isn't just universities that have to kick in, is it? No. And you know, if the student finance system does anything, it punishes uncertainty, time to take a rest or time to just take a break from studies. And, you know, I, I suppose it, this makes me think about two things, that 
there is a clear need for us all to think about what specific support and interventions look like for students who may be covered under the Equality Act who may have specific disabilities which need intervention. But more broadly, it just brings into such stark relief of a system where if things change, if they go wrong for you or things become difficult, does not effectively pick up any additional needs that may emerge. And I think that until we address the latter, then there is always going to be the sense of actually, are we doing enough? And whether we are or not, it's going to be exceptionally hard to judge until there is a sort of greater baseline of care, I think. I think that's what it comes down to. Okay, thanks everyone. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Louise Banahini, Director of Educational Engagement and Student Success at the University of Leeds. This week, we've been blogging on reflections from a recent roundtable hosted at the university, where the focus was on personal tutoring for diverse student groups. With key stakeholders from across the sector, both staff and students considered the factors that contribute to a successful model for personal tutoring amongst diverse student communities. Personal tutoring is a key route to providing academic support, and we will all have evidence of how it's enhanced students' experience. It's why it features so clearly in measures such as the NSS and then through into TEF. And yet there's a question about whether our personal tutoring is designed to reflect our current and future diverse student communities. With that breadth of prior lived and educational experiences, competing priorities as so many are required to work or have care and responsibilities. And in turn, this brings variability in strengths as well as areas for development amongst individuals and student groups. Collaboration across the sector, nationally and internationally, to share good practice through organisations such as UCAS and informally is important in sharing, learning from one another and continuing to evolve our models. Now, next up this week, UCAS has published January deadline data for the 2024 application cycle and it's a mixed picture, I think, Eve. It is indeed. So yes, the the January deadline application data is out. It's the sort of main deadline in the application cycle for the following academic year. Not all students will have applied by this point through the UCAS route, but it it captures a, a significantly large proportion of them. The overall trend is that the numbers of uh, England domiciled 18-year-olds and international students has increased slightly compared to last year with record highs of disadvantaged students applying. And though the raw numbers are up, the application rate for UK 18-year-olds has fallen for the third year in a row, albeit by only about 0.2%, but that is a sort of trend over the three years. Applications to high tariff providers are generally up slightly on last year. And interestingly, um, there's some information about kind of subject demand. So whilst demand for both STEM courses and also arts courses hold up, uh, applications to social sciences and also subjects allied to medicine like nursing have decreased. The latter, the sort of allied to medicine courses, um, that decline has been driven mainly by a 10% reduction in mature student applications in the last year, which is obviously a sort of worrying uh, statistic there. Now, James, let's start with this mature issue, because, you know, I mean, as Eve says, there's a there's a kind of close relationship to, um, to, to nursing. But if we have a really big kind of spike in applications to, say, nursing generally, and we get a spike in mature entrants, some of the kind of younger entrants, by, de- by definition, will mean that later on, people aren't then applying as mature students. So, so there's a cannibalization effect, isn't there, when it comes to kind of mature entry? Uh, I, I suppose so. But then that, that sort of, I mean, that assumes two things. One is that there's a finite amount of people who want to study nursing. 
And actually, I suppose one of the interesting trends is that we know for allied health generally remains really strong and one of the strongest application groups, but numbers are in a slow decline. And secondly, I suppose it sort of presumes that lots of people have choice as to when they study. And to go back to the point you made earlier, I suppose one of the real difficulties is, and you know, lifelong learning entitlements should help to address this in some ways, is that if I want to study something else when I'm older, if I've already studied something before, I'm basically stuck. So, so the way I'd look at it is rather than saying actually it's young people and older people, there's a choice about flexibility and do you have the option to change your mind? Our current system and the current statistics suggest no, we do not. Yes, interesting. Now, Ben, on the uh, on the international numbers, it looks like applications from India and Nigeria are down significantly. What on earth could be going on here? Mm, I wonder what on earth could be going on. Um, I, well, I think there's a couple of things going on, isn't there? Uh, you know, when you have um, narratives that are coming out around uh, international students, um, uh, migration, how uh, attractive the UK is. I do wonder how many of those uh, students, those recruiters, those countries um, feel that this is the most uh, welcoming place to bring um, international students. Um, and uh, we forget that there is a world market out there and that we're playing against other countries who um, are much more welcoming um, of those um, students in those spaces. Um, I think um, it is interesting around um, where those international students are coming from and whether um, there is um, specific types of institutions that have chosen to go into those markets and have maybe heavily um, invested time in recruitment in those spaces and are now doing less of that. Um, so I'd be interested to see kind of where in the sector those in the, those students are going to. Um, but I think, you know, when I'm out talking to students on campus, um, international students in particular, I am really, really starkly drawn to the idea that they are thinking about and have thought about during the application process going to other countries in a way that I don't think 10 years ago we would have seen in the same context. There is another thing going on here, though, James, isn't there? Because it's only last week that we got news from the British Council, actually, that said, look, because sterling has strengthened, um, you know, there's probably a kind of intractable cost of living problem here in terms of just how expensive Britain is in comparison to other countries that is feeding back. I don't know if I know enough about that because I suppose I would run lots of countries that have high-performing university systems that people wish to study in are expensive. I think the UK has a unique economic malaise which is making everything expensive and earnings generally crap, which isn't helpful. The the sort of wrinkle I would point in that to what you've said and what um, Ben said, Jim, is that generally, if you look over time, the January deadline applications for non-EU students, particularly to higher tariff institutions, have been on a continual upward curve. So I, I think the sort of the the question of the sector is 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 this some of the decline we are seeing now contingent because of changes to visas because the atmosphere that Ben's talking about, or is it more of a structural problem about the way that the UK economy is changing and the way that universities are changing too? I mean, it's easy to say time will tell, but I suspect that this particular moment of hostile environments, you know, mooted change in visa regulations, cost of living is making it particularly unappealing for some groups of students. Ben, obviously what we have today is national figures um, for each of the countries. We also have some demographic uh, breakdowns in terms of those figures, but on the ground, those numbers will not be equally distributed. Um, There's you know, almost certainly a continued kind of um, concentration towards the kind of more selective institutions, kind of that that kind of sucking up the league tables 
um, effect. That student numbers distribution problem, both in terms of international students and home students, is either students choosing the right university for them and where they want to go, or threatening regional economies and regional universities and making things very difficult. Now, you know, that's a real debate in the sector. Where do you sit? Uh, well, I, I think there is intense pressure on um, you know, meet table positions and, and where people are moving in the cycle. And we are seeing, I think, this sucking up of applications further up in the um, structure. I've spent lots of time in, in my career in lots of different institutions. and I'm now working in a highly selective institution. And it is very interesting to see how the impact of that transforms the kind of business model in which um, the institution is working in. Um, but we are in sustained economic challenging times. And I think there is something here about regional economies and the idea that um, for some students in some spaces that like a local choice won't necessarily be the right choice. Um, and, uh, you know, where people want to go in their career and the types of institutions they want to go to means that I do think you are seeing a shift um, into these spaces. I think the other thing that was interesting when I was reading this story, Jim, was the idea that are we seeing some of the long term consequences of um, education further on? Um, earlier in the system. So I'm a school governor. And it's really interesting watching and reading this and seeing the types of courses and challenges that we had in my school and would have been mirrored in lots of schools around the types of subjects that students are taking earlier on in the cycle, where assessment was harder or more challenging around examinations and how that has shifted people into really particular types of courses and therefore types of institutions that they um, are going to. And I think that is a really interesting thing that not many people are talking about that kind of knock-on effect um, through the application cycle. So much of students' lives takes place under the radar, but it's students' encounters around campus, their confidence and independent learning, and the pressures of juggling their work and personal commitments that shape how they engage with learning and teaching. To really enable students to thrive requires knowing about the full extent of their lives, not just the bits that universities can most readily see and touch. But time and money are in short supply for universities and students, and with no let-up on funding in sight, carefully choosing interventions that will help students to both survive and thrive has become more important and even tougher. Deepening our collective understanding of what it is in universities' gift to influence and how to do the things that make a difference is vital. So at our Secret Life of Students event, we'll be interrogating the contemporary higher education policy questions through the student lens, bringing together sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and student union managers, to figure out how to respond in the student interest. What role should universities and student unions play in stoking or calming conflict on campus? What are the expectations that we should place on students themselves to create a good learning experience? How are they learning and how can we both measure it and support it outside of the classroom? On the day, we'll round up key findings into the student experience from the past year and we'll launch exciting new findings on the student experience beyond the classroom. That's The Secret Life of Students, London, 12th of March. Book on wonky.com. See you there. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, finally this week, there's been all sorts of economic figures floating around, Ben. There has. It's been, uh, if you're an economist out there, you'll be having a rip-roaring week and reading lots of uh, information and data sets. So uh, it is official. We are in recession um, and GDP has shrunk um, in Q4 of 2023 um, by about 0.4%. Um, so uh, that puts us officially in recession, um, which uh, I think is a challenge for lots of people who are sitting at home thinking, could it get any worse? And people today will be waking up and feeling definitely that it probably is getting worse. Um, inflation still is running at 4%. Um, and that is a really challenging context for people at home when they are thinking about the pound in their pocket, um, how much um, things are costing. Um, and uh, there was lots of pressure, I think, in government around which is one of their key pledges um, to get the economy growing. Um, and it looks like on lots of the fronts that that is not working uh, and that we continue to stagnate. And this isn't just the UK problem, actually. The EU just missed going into recession at the back end of last year. And I think uh, Japan this week has also gone into recession. Um, so uh, this is something that's being felt in a global context. But still, for the UK, um, we have had sustained um, decline in growth um, the economy um, isn't where um, government and the sector would want it to be. And that has all kinds of consequences. And I think in relation to um, students in particular, that will be really challenging because, as we said across a couple of these points already, um, the idea that um, people have less money in their pocket at this moment in time and things continue to be more expensive, costs are going up puts challenge on a financial system in uh, HE, which is uh, uh, causing lots of people to be in poverty um, or have to make really difficult choices about study, work, care, all of those things um, that they're balancing on a day-to-day basis. Now, you know, on this, James, uh, one of the things I did this week was dive into the available data set for the Labour Force survey, which is not a perfect survey because it gets at students in halls through parents, which obviously doesn't cover international students. But in terms of the data that is there, what I found was this enormous growth in students that are working when they have a job, students that are working more than full time. And, you know, the number, I was sat looking at the graph thinking this can't be right. I had to check it a few times, but we appear to be in the middle of over three or four years, this enormous growth in students that are working 35, 40 hours a week. Yes, Jim. And I, I think on this, right, it is clearly completely, um, I suppose, unprecedented for students to be doing these hours. But regardless of what the recession actually looks like, students can tell you this. They've been feeling for a long time that their money's not going far enough and they're resorting to doing things, like you've said, of working loads and loads of hours. I think the impact on this is only just being felt. And one of the impacts is we spent an awful lot of time thinking about how do we have flexible learning, how do we innovate in pedagogy, etc., etc. We are going to be forced into doing it because the simple fact will be that students cannot afford to study at a full-time basis. And it brings the question of are we all part-time now? 
the long run issue that I'm concerned about is that if university is anything, it is a promise that your life will be better for going had you chosen not to. If we have a contracting economy and if students have to work whilst they're there, that social contract begins to erode because of how bad the economy is. I, th- I think we're facing both a short-term learning crisis and a long-term economic one for students. Now, now, now Eve, on this uh, full-time, part-time thing, clearly it makes lots of sense to arrange timetables and you know activities and uh, so on so that students are able to combine learning with earning but on the other hand if we normalize you know kind of part-time study and full-time work rather than the other way around if that becomes the kind of default there's all sorts of potential impacts aren't there in terms of both the kind of wider student experience but also what we end up doing to the kind of core learning experience almost by stealth yeah completely when i when i saw the sort of figures in in the wonky blog um i i was I just felt really sad for this generation of students who are um, having to do so much just to get by and then that's not even touching the sides of, of what they should be like, being able to engage with on their on their course. I mean, one of the things that like people that know me will have heard me say this time and time again, but one of the things that I found was so valuable when I was at university was the ability to engage in sort of the extracurricular stuff that wasn't full-time work, but with students' union opportunities and building communities and a sense of belonging and skill sets through that kind of, I suppose, voluntary stuff. And whilst whilst part-time work will inevitably um, give students some skills. It, it is a sort of, it's a completely different way and parameters by which to engage with those skills because it, it directly depletes your ability to engage in, in the, the course that you're, you're paying for effectively. Obviously, it goes more broadly than just the course. Um, but yeah, and I th- the thing that struck me as well was that we hear a lot about sort of Gen Z students and they're characterized as sort of snowflakes, all this kind of stuff. And honestly, I who wouldn't struggle working full time and studying full time? To me, they, it's just a very impressive, but it's a sad state of affairs when people don't have the ability or the headspace to engage in what higher education should be able to provide for them because every waking hour is spent earning money when it's not um, when they're not studying. Eve, just on that, like I think there's a complete difference between if you're working while studying because you've chosen a format of studying that means actually you want to work as well, and this sort of, actually I'm forced to work whilst doing full-time because I have no other choice. And one of my big like worries is, you know, I only went to university a decade ago, but it feels like an entirely different time. The sort of luxury just to not have to do lots and lots of things because I had a generous bursary, because my rent was affordable, because the cost of living isn't what it is, feels like a preserve for now richer students. And I think there's a real shame the ability to not just do very much is going to be squeezed and squeezed and squeezed by these twin pressures of work and study. Yeah, there's a structural problem there, though, isn't there, Jane? I mean, I've recently come back into HE and I'm, I'm fascinated by once again hearing senior leaders in lots of institutions when I'm out visiting people uh, talk about their experience when they were on campus 40 years ago, which was radically different to what it is to be a student today. And, um, you know, I think we have to do more about policymakers and senior leaders understanding what the day-to-day journey and existence of a student is on campus, rather than the idea that you were coming and getting free fees, a bursary, um, your halls of residence was... Uh, 
ridiculously cheap um, and you had a, an amazing time to be able to engage in the rest of your life. That isn't the day-to-day um, uh, life for a student. But the, the other thing, Jim, just to say is when does this become an academic standards issue? I find it, you know, we're all hearing these stories of someone who's got up at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning has done an eight hour shift before they come in and do their lectures. And if we use the same model of um, assessment loading and the work that lots of, you know, Monkey and others have done on how many hours in the week someone has to do the work that they need to do. And we applied that into this context. I think we would be seeing incredibly dangerous high levels of people working not resting etc and what does that have on their ability to be able to academically perform in the way that we want them to and ultimately is this going to be a crisis that will end up with lower outcomes people achieving less you know and and then the whole system begins to become in real challenge so i do think there is also a really strong academic integrity issue when you're seeing this kind of data coming up and in real life what that means for students on the ground i mean but ben your your point points towards two things either you have to change the student finance system to allow that idealized form of education which everyone believes is happening but we know secretly isn't or as you absolutely rightly point out you have to change the approach to teaching and learning to reflect the world we now live in i think we risk getting a worst of both worlds of having this sort of old-fashioned style to a modern world where you just can't do anything like that but eve you know here's a question for you right so you know one of the things about the credit system is that notionally at least we still in theory for you know every credit allocate a certain number of kind of guided learning hours right i mean you know the credit system is to some extent based around hours now if students are still getting you know doing well in t- in terms of good honors what is happening how how are students managing to do that if we've been telling ourselves that they need to do a certain number of kind of guided learning hours in order to achieve the outcomes is it that standards are slipping or is it that you know students are are you know really really stretching themselves you know what gives here Yeah, it's a great question. And and all of this points to, I suppose, the fact that so many external factors can have ultimately a bearing on academic quality and and standards. And and it's kind of all encompassing. My, I, at the moment, I think that the, what is having to give to your question is student well-being and their time and their sort of mental health, because it, it just sounds so tough and we you know we hear from students and you can see it in the data that that well-being and mental health is like a massive massive issue um amongst student populations and it's sort of no wonder when this is the the kind of situation that they're in i think there's there's an interesting question for me about um broadly what sort of activity can uh students accrue credit for given that their kind of learning pattern in a week now looks very different from what it did 10 years ago but the definition of credit stayed the same um and i think especially with lifelong learning coming down the track and questions about the recognition of prior learning where that's been gathered elsewhere i do think the sector is going to have to grapple a bit more seriously with what it considers as as that sort of prior learning or learning outside of, of, of traditional, I guess, academic modules and whether it's about um, accrediting, you know, work-based learning that actually is is helping students through their employment. I, I'm not sure, but but some, you're right. Something has to give. And at the moment, my sense it is that it's students' sort of general sanity and, and well-being and, and kind of sense of peace, I guess. 
I also think it's really important to think about where this, um, how this plays out at different parts of the sector. So I am superly conscious of um, when you may be down in modern institutions where you have a different type of student, the articulation of how this challenge definitely is experienced as a welfare issue, um, a well-being issue, um, but also where those pressures are experienced in a totally different way. Often those individual students might be supporting a family um, or maybe, um, uh, you know, a home, etc. And those are real different life choices to the top of the sector, where often those are experienced in a much more traditional way of am I able to access and participate in lots of the enriching activities? And I think it is important that we don't forget about the difference and what that might mean for the types of students, particularly as we all do more to try and widen participation. I'm conscious that if you are sitting in South Bank or City or, you know, London, you know, UEL or all of those kind of institutions, those students will be making very genuine decisions about whether to be able to go to a lecture or whether to be able to have to work or whether to be able to put that additional time into the assessment, which feels to me like really, really awful choices that those individual um, students will have to make when they've already had to compromise and make so many difficult decisions just to be able to get into HE. And uh, I would just add on that, Ben the sort of mental decisions that people make before they even turn up of this now feels like a massive risk because I'm not sure I can afford it and we know that it tends to be that the poorest students are the most debt averse and that's not about tuition fees but about an actual material can I turn up and live and study and it all of a sudden feels much more risky than it once did. And even once those students have made the decision to study, but they're having to make those sort of decisions day by day to decide whether to engage in a particular lecture or to take up an extra shift at the pub or whatever it might be. Those are the sorts of conditions that make it more likely that students will look to alternative routes to complete assessments, whether that's traditional essay mills or a higher dependency on on sort of poorer use of academic uh, of generative AI tools in order to complete assessments and then and you know as Ben said when when you start to think of it in that way it becomes an academic integrity issue quite quickly. I mean it's, it's funny isn't it like Eve I don't know Eve we were officers about the same time and you'll remember there was loads of work about hidden course fees and you know what's the actual cost of education etc like those hidden course fees are still a massive scandal but it feels like the actual present course fees are now equally large deterrents. And when you know Ben was saying earlier about how higher education, you just can't imagine how things have changed. It almost feels quaint to be worried about those hidden costs when the very present costs are so enormous and challenging. Completely. And you know, it wasn't it wasn't all that long ago um, that that you know we were directly in in that sort of student world. And to to hear about what it's like now in a relatively short space of time. Um, yeah, just makes me sad at, at the kind of decline and, and you know, in great awe of students that are having to shoulder a significant amount of, I guess, a sort of baseline existential stress about how they're going to, to survive, let alone thrive at university. I mean, Jim, to your question about if students have no money, is it fair to enrol them? <laughs> I, I think it's really tough because universities can't solve all the problems of society. And universities are still one of the single best tools we have for social mobility. And ultimately, if you take the point of saying, actually, there should be strict affordability checks, there should be these really, really sort of onerous obligations, then my worry is, is that would be the best of students who would always find a way to make it work. So I think whilst I would always want universities to do more to make education affordable, I think we have to be super careful that an affordability discussion doesn't become a don't come study here if you don't have much money. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. 
don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out just search for the wonky show wherever you get your podcasts and to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in uk HE, do head to the site and click subscriptions so thanks very much to eve ben james michael salmon who makes the show happen we'll be back next week mark will be here until then stay wonky Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.